Uh, this is actually the second time that I've been here, and since this is the second time, perhaps I can now let my hair down a little bit and uh, mention truthfully that we and our family love the Harry Potter series. We think it's, uh, we think it's a great series of books. We love losing ourselves uh, in Hogwarts, or right now we're actually losing ourselves in Middle Earth, uh, Narnia, wherever it uh, may be, it re-engages our imagination. I was thinking with uh, my kids the other day, what it would be like to live in a world where, you know, where magic exists, where like pictures move on the page. How cool is that? Or you could uh, send messages to people across the world in the blink of an eye or travel in minutes to strange and foreign places. And of course, we actually do live in that world. In fact, most of those things I could do on my phone. Uh, it is odd to think about the miracle of Facebook as it was put earlier, but uh, nevertheless, it is the miracle of Facebook that we can gather worldwide with other Christians and worship the Lord. It's often the case that we look at the world in which we live and we see mundanity. We, we see the kind of the gray snow piled up on the side of the road, and it just is so bleak and mundane and uh, boring, and we forget that our world is full of magic. And often the problem there is not so much the world, it's that we've grown accustomed to it. It's that we have had a failure of imagination. As we turn to This is all going somewhere. Uh, As we turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 8, Hebrews, I can introduce the book this way. Hebrews wants you to reimagine the basic constitutive elements of the Christian life. We forget them. They become mundane. But it wants us to use words like we used in this him. He wants us to see ourselves armed by faith, winged by prayer, the magic, the miracle of the presence of God. And he does so in Hebrews 8, 1 through 5, by reminding us that we have a heavenly high priest and a heavenly temple at which we gather. I'm going to read the first five verses here, pray, and then let's consider the word together. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old is, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. 
Lord God, we thank you that you have established your king on Zion's hill. We thank you that you have placed your priest in a heavenly tent. And that as we consider our faith, our worship, our walk, our pilgrimage, as we consider the walk from grace to glory, you would encourage us along the way by seeing the glory that we have ahead of time in the ministrations of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Often, that first flush of the Christian life, that first, that that origin point, that excitement that we have about coming to Christ and about dwelling with him, and we understand the doctrines of grace for the first time, or perhaps there's moments in your life where you've hit this kind of spiritual experience that just changes your entire vision. You get excited about being a Christian. And perhaps you're in one of those periods not now, and you uh, may I encourage you, if you are, if you're feeling that excitement about the Christian life and about your pilgrimage with the Lord, share that with others. Because it's often the case That as we grow in the Christian life, as we mature in the Christian life, things become much more mundane. There is a goodness of habit and ritual and gathering uh, Sunday to Sunday. Many of us, as we kind of regathered after that first COVID quarantine, we're excited to see our brothers and sisters in the faith again. We remember the goodness it is to gather Together and to worship together. But so often we forget that and we feel like we're not making progress in the Christian life. We forget that excitement that we had at the first. And it seems oh so mundane. Every once in a while we'll throw in a bit of excitement, perhaps change things up a bit. We'll do a fast or maybe a special season of prayer or go on a retreat and reclaim that excitement. But often so much of what we do as Christians, so much of our walk with the Lord is just ordinary. But like the magic that surrounds us in this world that we often don't see and think about from dandelions to smartphones, So much of the Christian life, though it seems so ordinary, is actually extraordinary. And what uh, the author of Hebrews does here in Hebrews 8 is remind us of that by giving us two images, reclaims the cost of salvation and the power that's going on all in the background, all the things that have to go in place in the background so that God can be with you in space and time so that your pilgrimage isn't a pilgrimage that is conducted alone but is conducted even with the presence of God as you wander from grace to glory. There's so much going on and Hebrews 8 provides this little nexus point in the book you see uh, at the very beginning. Now this is the point of what we are saying. It's great when an author just kind of comes to the point and tells you, hey, here it is. Now, it's Hebrews chapter 8, and as I tell my students, please put your main point at the beginning of the paper, not at in the middle of the paper. But we have here classic Greek rhetorical style right here in the middle. He circles into his main point, and it comes a kind of a hub between the two sides of Hebrews. This is a hinge point. 
in the book. And we're going to look at that hinge this morning by first addressing the high priest that we have. We have such a high priest. And then we're going to use that to vector into the second part of the book. A high priest who sits enthroned in a heavenly tent. First then, we have such a high priest. Such is an important word. Uh, Such is a, a word that points. Pointing words are great because they tell you what's going on and kind of the logic of the book. And if you've ever gotten lost while reading Hebrews, you should, be, you should forgive yourself. Many have gotten lost while reading Hebrews because they forget one of the tricks in reading Hebrews is to, to remember these pointing words, therefore, for, such, then, although. All of these words do important work and they're right there for us in our English translation. Such points back. We have such a high priest And in fact, since chapter four, the author has been telling us the kind of high priest we have. Actually, the author's been doing two things, the kind of high priest we don't have and the kind of high priest we do have. The kind of high priest that we don't have is a high priest like those Levitical priests instituted Under the Mosaic law, we don't have a high priest like them. And if you look back, if you just look in your page one chapter back, you'll see this lengthy discussion of we have a priest like Melchizedek, not a priest like Levi. Well, what's going on there? What why is that important? See, the Levitical priesthood, according to the author of Hebrews, and he works through the logic and he He goes into the Old Testament and he shows this was always there for the seeing. This isn't something new I'm adding. This isn't something I'm inventing. He he goes back into the Old Testament and says, look, the Old Testament priest, the the Levitical priest, this was always designed to be a bit fractured. It's not sustainable. It, It does a good work. It does what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 3, a glorious work, but it is not sustainable on its own. It it points forward to a future reality. It's broken, and it's broken not because it was designed to be broken. It's broken because it can't really solve the problem of human sin. Uh, If you read, if you go into Leviticus and start reading, I mean, we are all on our, the the first flush of our uh, year-long Bible reading plans, and Leviticus approacheth. Uh, And if you're wondering what to do with Leviticus, kind of as a reading strategy for that book, Leviticus numbers these these big rocks on which our annual reading uh, plan crash. Uh, Think about Leviticus, the arduousness of it. Consider that maybe, maybe... It's not just difficult reading for you. It's actually difficult reading for the Israelites because getting into the presence of God is difficult. In our modern world, our world where we are spiritual but not not religious, we think the presence of God is an easy thing. God is everywhere. God listens to all of our prayers. Husbands, do you realize that there... Remember 1 Peter Chapter 3 says, Husbands, love your wives in a, 
understanding way. Why? Lest your prayers be hindered. God hears all the prayers. How can my prayers be hindered? Actually, no. Prayers entering into the presence of God is a big deal. See, God dwells in the splendor of his holiness. Yes, he he can hear everything that's happening. There is nothing that he doesn't understand. There is no prayer that that he can't hear because it's blocked or because it's not loud enough or something like that. We're not saying that. But on the other hand, he dwells in the splendor of his holiness. And he gives good gifts to people of goodwill. It it is a difficult thing to dwell with God because he is a holy, perfect God. There are good things in that psalm, that Psalm 110, but you saw justice there. You saw hard things as well. He will defeat his enemies. He will come not only with grace and mercy, but with a sword. Because he is a holy God. We take advantage of the promise of his presence. We forget how big a deal it is to enter into the holy of holies. You read Leviticus and you will not make that mistake. Fast forward, spoiler alert. Our high priest is going to sit down in the holy of holies. Relax there. You read Leviticus. I cannot imagine any high priest on the day of atonement. Sitting down and relaxing in the Holy of Holies. It is a fearful thing. The tabernacle, Leviticus, Numbers, the old tent, the tent that Moses pitched, the tent that was image, an image of this heavenly tent. That tent is designed to tell you, I will be with you, but don't come too close and don't stay long. Everywhere you look, It tells you God is here. But don't touch anything. God God comes near his people. And that is a glorious truth. So glorious is it that Moses' face shines with glory. And the Israelites can't, see, they can't abide the reflected glory of God. They They can't abide the glory of God as it is reflected dimly. On Moses' face. That's how glorious it is for God to dwell with his people. But there are barriers. There's furniture and sacrifices and piles of animals and blood. And it all tells you, don't come too close. Don't stay long. Here's, Here's the beauty of the priest we have. See, that hasn't changed God dwelling in the splendor of his holiness, that doesn't change from old to new. God doesn't sort of lighten the load, and that's how we have this glorious presence. No, what changes is we don't have a priest like them. We have such a high priest. We have a new kind of high priest, a better high priest. And let's be clear, it's not that the Levites got it wrong. This was a designed obsolescence. It was designed to be this way so that when the good and glorious came, so that when the perfect comes, it would pass away. It's not that the Levites got it wrong and they did something that they shouldn't have done. I mean, they did. They're all sinners. They all die like we die. And they die like we die because we are sinful. But it's not that they misunderstood what God had said. It's that... This was designed to teach the world this, that you can't have God on every mountain. 
that you can't come to God willy-nilly. That if he is going to dwell in the splendor of his holiness, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. It is a fearful thing to approach his throne room. We have such a high priest, not one like they were, but one who is sinless, sympathetic, and seated. And you know those are important because they all start with S. He's sinless, he's sympathetic, and he's seated. First and, and perhaps foremost, we could say he's sinless. This is where Hebrews 7 actually closes. It has this lengthy argument about Melchizedek. It has this uh, interwoven within that. It has discussion about the Abrahamic covenant and how it fits. And Psalm 110 shows up here. But it closes with this basic comparison. You see, the problem is they were sinful And so there's nothing that they do that isn't tainted by death. The whole point of the sacrificial system is to come to to God as the giver of perfect life. But everything that the Israelites do is tainted by death. Not because they're Israelites, because they're like us. They're sinners. So the priests are prevented from death by death from continuing in office. The, the problem is sin, and sin attaches to everything, and so the system becomes unsustainable. It's not scalable for human sin. It can't handle the load. And when the weight becomes too great, the thing comes crashing down, and here's the miracle. There is a sinless one to catch it all. Jesus comes as the sinless high priest who is capable, because of his sinlessness, of bearing that load. It all falls on him. And as it falls on him, it, though it crushes him on the cross, he is raised in glory at the resurrection. That's the logic of the Gospels, crushed by our sin, but he does not stay crushed. He does not stay dead. Indeed, death cannot contain him. Why? Because he is sinless, and so he is raised into glory. But he's not just sinless. if, If you've met a sinless person, you know that sympathy is probably not one of their other defining characteristics. Jesus is sinless and sympathetic. Why? Because because he is tempted, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, he's tempted in every way as we are tempted. He is made perfect as a high priest by suffering, by temptation. He is not insulated from the cares of this world. He is not protected from the struggles that exist because of the curse of humanity. No, he's, he's sinless but he as a sinless divine person, he experiences all of the temptations and struggles and challenges and sufferings that we experience. Every kind of suffering he has experienced and it caused him to be tempted yet without sin. Which means he knows what it is to be human. See, he's divine, but he knows Fully what it is to be fully human and to be tempted in every way as we ourselves are tempted. And that means that though sinless, he is also sympathetic. 
He is the sympathetic high priest. This is, this is what you want, by the way, in a high priest. Because it's the job of the high priest to bring your concerns to God. See, the prophets in the Old Testament, they bring God's concern to men. What do the priests do? They bring our concerns up to God. They mediate between us and God. They provide a kind of communication point, a, a presence point, so that we have true communion with God. You want a high priest who isn't going to look away, who doesn't let you into their office and tolerate your presence there. You want a high priest who sympathizes, who loves, who delights to bring your concerns to the Father. That we have, we have such a high priest. One who is sinless, one who is sympathetic, and third, one who is seated. This is where our passage picks up the logic of the story so far. He is sinless, unlike them, unlike the Levites, he is sinless, sympathetic, and unlike the Levites, in his resurrection, he is seated. He sits in this holy tent. He sits at the very right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. One of the reasons theologians love Hebrews so much is because you've got actually all of the offices of the Old Testament, uh, prophet, priest, and king. You've got them all intertwined into one so that they all find their fulfillment here in Jesus Christ. This is what the author's been doing in Hebrews 7. It's maybe a circuitous argument. Give it a read later. Uh, See if you can follow the logic. But the culminating point of the logic is right here in Hebrews 8. The main point is right here in Hebrews 8. We have not just a priest, but a priest king who represents all of humanity. They couldn't have priests, kings. We can. Why? Because we have a sinless and sympathetic priest. So we have a priest king who sits down in the Holy of Holies. He sits down in God's presence and he is always there never to depart. There is this seat that has been waited, waiting to be sat in. Do you remember in the Chronicles of Narnia where there are four thrones in Ker Paravel, two for the sons of Adam, two for the daughters of Eve? And those were put, those of you who are Narnia fans know that those were put there way back in the beginning in uh, the magician's nephew days. And they have been empty. Well, there is a seat that has been empty for oh so long in God's great creation. There is a seat that has been waiting to be sat in. A, a son of Adam who would be king over the heavens and the earth and would reign as God's vice regent over the new heavens and the new earth who would bring about new creation, who would establish all of the glorious things that have been promised by God, that seat has a body in it now. It is Jesus Christ risen. He sits as the priest king over all of creation. And here's what he does. He welcomes us in. He says, come. Stay as long as you want. Here's the hinge point. He sits. Where does he sit? He sits in a heavenly tent. We have such a high priest, a high priest who is able to sit in this heavenly tent. And 
Uh, lovers of Hebrews have often puzzled over what is this heavenly tent. Well, first of all, to state the obvious, this heavenly tent is a tent in heaven. It is not like, and in fact, as Hebrews pulls off of uh, into 8, 3, and 4, and then goes into 9, it expands on this idea that what Moses did is he built a copy of something. Moses' tent was a copy of the heavenly tent. The temple was a copy of the heavenly tent. All of the tents, all of the holy places, the sanctuaries of the old covenant, they were copies of this heavenly tent. What Jesus does, because he's perfect and because he comes not with the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, he is able to cleanse not the copy, but the real thing. He is, his blood is more powerful it's not the, uh, the copy of heavenly blood. It is heavenly blood. And so it cleanses the heavenly tent. So the tent in which Jesus sits, in which he ministers, is a heavenly tent. The presence of God mediated in the New Testament is a more glorious presence. They had a shadow of the good things that are, are to come. We're, we're talking about the, this this Old Testament tent and dwelling with God in the splendor of his holiness. But we, we will remember that it was a, a smoke that entered into that tent. By contrast, the heavenly tent is where God, God's true presence dwells. God doesn't go into it and come out of it. This is where he is. This is, this is his true self, we might say. Not a picture, not an image, but very God. This is where Jesus ministers. This is where he tells you to come into heaven itself. And the second aspect of this tent is a bit of a riddle. It's a bit of a puzzle. It's a very cool thing that the author of Hebrews uh, does. He calls this heaven. You are go- where are you going when you draw near to your heavenly high priest? You're drawing near to heaven itself. Not the copy, but the substance. Not the shadow, but the real thing. Then why is it called a tent? That seems a bit uh, outdated. It's actually a, this unique thing that the New Test- that, 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 that's here in Hebrews. When the rest of the New Testament talks about the glorious things... That have been spoken of in Jesus Christ. We talk about Jesus. It's, it's uh, this temple of my body. I will raise in three days. Uh, when, Re- when Revelation talks about heaven. It talks about it as a glorious city. With sapphire and gold. And palaces and all this. It uses temple language. To talk about the New Testament realities. Hebrews is unique. In that it uses the language of the tabernacle. Not the temple. And it does it consistently throughout the book. You draw near to a heavenly tent. Why a tent? Why does Hebrews at this critical moment not pick that more glorious of institutions, the temple? A heavenly tent. Why is heaven a tent? The answer is because you are in the wilderness. Because you are on a pilgrimage. Because the Christian life isn't some static thing where you are established, settled, 
at rest. It's a pilgrimage. It's a wandering. It's a journey. It's from grace to glory. And because it's from grace to glory, because you've been called out from Egypt and yet have not reached promised land, because you are a wanderer in the wilderness, what you need is the heavenly presence of God in a vehicle fit for you, in a way fit for you. You are a pilgrim, and so you need an encampment along the way. As you journey, you need God to come with you on the journey. That's what the Christian life is. It's a wilderness wandering out of Egypt unto promised rest. And in the middle, God gives us a tent so that he could come with us on the journey. We need to reimagine what we're doing when we're doing worship, when we're doing faith, when we're doing our devotional times, when we're praying. We need to reimagine the basic constitutive elements of the Christian life. These are not boring rituals. When we gather here on Sunday, we gather in an outpost, a safe place, a protected haven of rest as we pursue the promised rest that is to come, the perfect rest that is to come. We are given a foretaste of heaven in our worship together as we seek the fullness of the promises that are yet to be. That's what this is. It's windy out there. It's cold out there. It's dangerous outside. And our journey is not yet over and there are challenges to face. Life is brief moments of rest between trials. And this is one of those moments of rest. That's what worship is. Faith is not some pass that you get, some aisle that you walk down. So you got the ticket that would take you then into heaven. And and you just got to remember that you have the ticket when St. Michael, uh, the angel Michael, asks you how you should get into this place. That's not what faith is. Faith is armor that protects you in the battle as you seek the promised land. Prayer. Prayer are wings by which you enter into the very presence of Jesus Christ as he brings you into the presence of his Father who gives you comfort, who gives you help in your time of need. These are the elements of the presence of God. And it took Jesus' death and resurrection to make those elements so basic so normal, so ordinary that we forget how glorious they are. We forget the miracle behind them. Remember, remember, as we worship, as we pray, as we gather together in fellowship with the new community of faith, which, we, which will flourish forever and ever without ceasing, remember that all of these things are guaranteed to us because we have such a high priest. Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement it is for us to gather, the encouragement it is for us to continue the often arduous, the seemingly mundane, the ordinary walk of faith. May we not forsake the gathering of 
together of your people. May we not forsake the glory of prayer. May we not take advantage of the reading of your word, the communion of the saints. Lord, as we partake of this meal that is set before us, let us remember that this is not dry dry bread, but this is the body of Christ. That this is not mere wine, but it is the blood of Christ. And that we partake in a heavenly banquet, seated with brothers and sisters, gathered for a meal with our Heavenly Father, the Son, the Spirit. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Christ. We pray that we would be encouraged thereby. Amen.